morning, everyone. Um, it is a real joy to be with you this morning. Um, and I want uh, to say thank you to everybody uh, taking part this morning. Thank you so much to Ernie uh, for sharing that bit of his story with us, uh, which was so encouraging. Um, thank you to Sarah and Timmy, uh, who've led us in worship this morning, um, and to Leslie, who kicked us off by praying for us at the beginning, um, and also to Caleb, who you can't see, who's on the, the sound desk this morning. Um, just to say, um, next Sunday, um, we're going to take uh, a one-week break from uh, the Sermon on the Mount, um, and we're going to do something a little bit different. So Dalway Johnson, who many of you will know who's part of our fellowship here, um, Dalway has been involved for many years, many, many years, I think, uh, with an amazing Christian charity called Fields of Life, who work in Uganda and Burundi and various other African countries. So Dalway is going to be sharing next Sunday um, a little bit of the story of Fields of Life and their vision and the amazing work that they do. Uh, and also, I guess, a little bit of his own journey and story of being involved with them and what that's meant to him. Uh, so I think that'll be a real one, one not to miss uh, next Sunday. And then we'll go back to the Sermon on the Mount uh, the week after. I was actually kind of glad the way it fell because if Dalway wasn't doing next week, uh, it would, it's Valentine's Day next Sunday. And we'd be talking about anger and hatred in the Sermon on the Mount, which kind of would have felt a bit off. So I'm glad we'll get to that the week after Valentine's Day. Um, let's come to our uh, our passage for this morning. Uh, let me just introduce it uh, this way. Um, you, you may remember uh, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that the Sermon on the Mount begins with a kind of burst of gospel good news. Uh, this repetition of the word blessed, 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 as Jesus the King announces this good news of great joy for all the people, that the kingdom of heaven and all of its blessings are now available to everyone, even the burnt out and the battered and the bruised and the spiritually empty and all those things that we talked about. Wherever you are, whatever state your life is in, um, the kingdom of heaven is available through Jesus. And it's a gift, and it's unexpected, and it's undeserved. It's it's amazing grace, what we find in that, that burst of blessing at the beginning of the sermon. And so that's really important. The, that gospel announcement comes first. That is the always the center and heart of the message and mission of Jesus. Um, but that gospel announcement is also always open to misunderstanding. Because we can find ourselves thinking, well, if everything is given as a free gift of grace, then maybe how I live my life today, how I live my life tomorrow, doesn't really matter that much. And as we're going to see as we read on this morning, um, if we're thinking in that way, then that is a deep and deadly misunderstanding of the message of Jesus. Um, So let's read together. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 17. And this is what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, 
Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. wonder how those verses strike you this morning. They're, they're, they're difficult verses uh, in many ways. They're challenging verses. Uh, but I'm hoping to persuade you over the next little while that they're also full of good news uh, for people uh, like you and me. Um, I want to talk about three things this morning. Um, I want to talk about Jesus and the Old Testament. I want to talk about Jesus and commands. And I want to talk about Jesus and the Pharisees. And maybe even as I put that on the screen, I'm thinking that that sounds kind of dry and maybe a little bit dull. Um, but maybe if I can try and get your attention at the beginning, I think if we get these things kind of wrong in our thinking and our living, we'll end up with a kind of religion that will that will choke the life out of us and the people around us. But if we can hear truly and rightly what Jesus is saying here, and it gets into our hearts and into our living, we'll end up walking in a way that will bring life to us and to the people around us. So that's what's at stake, a religion that kills or a way that brings life. Um, so let's pay attention together. Let's think, first of all, uh, about Jesus and the Old Testament. Uh, let me ask you this question. Um, how do you feel about the Old Testament? Uh, maybe it's not unusual to hear someone say, uh, I'm more of a New Testament person myself, um, or I like Jesus, but I don't like the God of the Old Testament. And of course, there are all kinds of reasons why people might think in that way that are very understandable. But there's one great, great difficulty with that position. And that difficulty is Jesus himself, because Jesus loves the Old Testament. Um, those who've studied the teaching of Jesus uh, closely will say that Jesus hardly speaks a sentence in the New Testament that's not full of the language of the Old Testament and the imagery of the Old Testament and borrowing phrases from the Old Testament. Um, Jesus lives and breathes the Old Testament. Uh, and in the passage that we just read, he says emphatically, not the smallest letter or stroke of a pen will disappear from the law and the prophets. Uh, the law and the prophets was uh, a kind of shorthand way for a Jewish person to refer to the whole of the Old Testament. Not the smallest letter or stroke of a pen will disappear. Uh, the King James says not one jot or tittle will disappear. In the Greek it says not one iota, which was the smallest Greek letter, um, will disappear until heaven and earth pass away. Uh, last time I checked, last time I looked out the window, heaven and earth have not yet passed away. So this still applies for us now. Um, if we want to honor Jesus, then we must honor the Old Testament. Um, and of course, it's important to say that doesn't mean we'll always find it easy. There will be things that we'll find confusing or troubling. And we're going to have questions that we need to bring to Jesus and talk about. And that's good. But we can't dismiss the Old Testament or ignore it um, or just turn away from it. Um, 
Jesus loved the Old Testament and Jesus encourages us to read the Old Testament as a story that leads us to him. A story that finds its fulfillment in him. That's what he says. I haven't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Um, And so every time we get in trouble when we're reading the Old Testament, every time we get confused, we keep coming back to this principle of asking Jesus, how does this lead me to you? How does this, this uh, act as a story uh, that leads me to you? So Jesus loved the Old Testament. Jesus honored the Old Testament. We've got to honor it as a story that leads to him. Um, I was going to put in a little bit at this point about uh, something that's kind of important, which I was going to put under the heading of why do Christians eat bacon? Um, there's a whole bunch of really important questions around why do we as Christians um, obey some of the Old Testament law, like love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself, and don't commit adultery, and don't lie, and don't steal. But there are other parts of the Old Testament law that we would say don't apply to our Christian lives, like the food laws, um, and the, the sacrificial system, and circumcision, and things like that. Um, I don't have time to get into all of that this morning, so I'm going to kind of leave that hanging and just say those are really good questions and important ones for us to think about. Uh, why why do Christians eat bacon? Um, go and think about it. Go and think about how you would answer that question. But I want to move on uh, to think about Jesus and commands. And let me ask you this question. What part do commands play in the Christian life? Um, perhaps sometimes we're kind of hoping that they don't really play much part at all. Um, Going back to what we said at the beginning, we've heard that joyful announcement of the gospel of grace and that the kingdom of heaven is not something that we earn by our obedience or good behavior, but something given as a gift by Jesus our King. And so, of course, we believe our life is now not defined by rules, but by relationship. We often say that. Our life is a life, uh, an adventure of living by the Spirit. And as Paul says in Romans 6, we are not under law, but under grace, right? So maybe we're hoping commands don't really play much part anymore. But then what do we make of this? Jesus, our gracious King, says, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And he also says, whoever sets aside the least of these commands will be called least in the kingdom. Whatever it means to live by grace and live by the Spirit, it doesn't mean commands get thrown out the window. And actually that way, throwing commands out the window doesn't actually lead to the freedom that we were hoping for. We need God's good commands. Um, and in the Bible, we are, we are given lots of good commands. There are those good commands in the Old Testament that still apply to us that we talked about a minute ago. Um, Jesus, as we go on in the Sermon on the Mount, is going to give us more good commands. Um, and if you read on in the New Testament, into the letters of Paul and Peter and James and John, what do we find? We find that they, they all preach and believe the gospel of grace. They trumpet the glad tidings of God's grace but they also give us very practical, very direct, very blunt commands to live by. Commands, God's good commands, are really important in our living. 
Um, Dallas Willard, uh, who I think has taught me more about these things than any other writer, um, he calls this the great omission in the Great Commission. Um, what, what does he mean by that? Well, do you remember the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel? Um, I, I'm guessing most of us could probably have a go at reciting it from memory. Um, how does it begin? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Dallas Willard's suggestion is that we often stop there. We go and make converts. Maybe we make disciples. We baptize them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But how does the Great Commission end? It ends like this. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Right at the heart of Jesus giving us our commission to go and preach the gospel. He tells us to go and teach those that we disciple to obey everything that he's commanded. So if you and I think commands are not a part of following Jesus, then we've badly misunderstood the gospel of grace. And actually, we end up with a gospel that's not really good news at all because it leaves people untransformed. It leaves people kind of drifting aimlessly uh, in their lives or it leaves them entangled by their own uh, appetites and desires. We need God's good commands to point the way to the life that we were created for. Jesus says in John 14, uh, really simply, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Um, John writes in 1 John 5, and I love this. He says, this is love for God to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. I love that. I think that's a quote to write on your wall and think about and meditate on and, and ponder over. His commands are not burdensome. If we hear God's commands in the right way through the lens of Jesus and through the lens of the gospel, they will not lead to heavy, burdensome religion. They will actually lead to life and freedom and joy. And so I want to turn to our third thing that we want to think about this morning. I want to think about the way of Jesus and the way of the Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were uh, very serious people. <laughs> they were they were very widely respected. And it's really important to mention that because we kind of know the Pharisees are kind of get a bad rap in the New Testament. But they were widely respected. Most people in the time of Jesus would have thought that the Pharisees represented what a godly, spiritual, holy person looks like. If you want to get a picture of someone who's spiritual, someone who's godly, that, that's what it looks like. Um, the Pharisees would have agreed with Jesus about a number of big things. They agreed with Jesus that the Old Testament was important. They knew the Bible well. Uh, Jesus says they studied it diligently. They agreed with Jesus that holiness was important, that living a righteous life was important. They agreed with Jesus that God's commands really matter. There's a lot that they agree on. But from that point, they went in radically different directions. The way of Jesus and the way of the Pharisees diverge very widely. Um, and I guess I want to say, as we get into this, that this is not a piece of ancient history. These two options still exist for us today. The way of the Pharisees is alive and well in 2021 in Northern Ireland. And so this is 
uh, kind of urgent and relevant and important for our lives. Um, and I also want to say this, that I think at this point we need a little warning that we always tend to see the Pharisees over there. Um, a friend of mine used to say, we read the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and the Pharisee says, thank you, God, that I'm not like the tax collector. And we say, thank you, God, that I'm not like the Pharisee. We always see Phariseeism across the road. <laughs> uh, those churches, that denomination, that tradition, have a problem with Phariseeism. But actually, it can infect any part of the church. Or maybe we we think of other people in our, our own church, and we think they, they maybe have a problem with Phariseeism. But it's something that can infect any of our hearts. And so actually, as we come to think about this, it's important to, to maybe pause and ask God to examine our hearts. And maybe we could pray something like this. Search, search me, O God, and know my heart. And show me if there's any pharisaical way in me. And lead me in the life everlasting in the, in the way of Jesus. Um, we ask God to search our hearts. Um, but I want to I wanna make four statements about the contrast between the way of Jesus and the way of the Pharisees, and maybe these will help us in kind of examining our own our own hearts and lives. The first one is this. The way of the Pharisees is complicated. The way of Jesus is simple. And I don't mean by simple that it's easy to do, but hopefully it'll become clear what I mean. Um, the Pharisees tended to take God's commands in the Bible and then add lots and lots and lots and lots of subcommands and clauses onto those commands, spelling out what people could and couldn't do. They literally had on their shelves volumes and volumes and volumes of these detailed regulations working out the law in practice. Let me read you an example in case you don't believe me. Um, so this is from some of the writings from the time of Jesus and shortly after. Um, talking about the Sabbath command. So in the Old Testament, you get a command, keep the Sabbath day holy. You're to rest from your work on the Sabbath. That's quite a simple command. But this is what happened to it. Um, they, they elaborated on it in this way. Uh, they said that a new lamp can be moved from one place to another on the Sabbath, but not an old one. Hot food can be kept warm by covering with clothes or feathers or dried flax but not by covering with damp herbs or straw, which would engender fresh heat and therefore work on the Sabbath. A donkey can go out on the Sabbath day wearing its saddlecloth if it was fixed on before the Sabbath, but it may not wear a bell because the bell would ring and that would be work for the donkey. Goats can go out with a protective cloth on their udder if its purpose is to keep them dry, but not if its purpose was to collect their milk, and so on and so on. And so on. Um, I wonder how you feel about those kind of examples. Um, I think often we find it easy to laugh at those kind of examples. Um, but this is still the Pharisee way today. Um, I wonder if you ever noticed that when you and I actually face practical decisions day by day, often the Bible doesn't have a direct command to help us decide exactly what to do. We're trying to decide is it okay for me to go to the cinema? Our grandparents' generation may have said no. Our generation might say yes. If, if it is okay to go to the cinema, what is it okay to watch? Can I watch anything? Are there things that I should say no to? How do I make those kind of decisions? 
Should I go to the pub with my colleagues after work? If I do go, should I have a drink with them or not? Is it okay for me as a Christian to work for a company that sells cigarettes or that sells magazines with questionable content or that sells weapons for war? Is it okay to go dancing or to practice yoga or to listen to hip-hop? How much should I spend on a car? How much is it okay to spend on a holiday or a new phone? Should a Christian vote? If so, who should I vote for? Can I join a political party? Of all the thousands and thousands of Christian books that keep coming out, which ones should I read? Which ones may not be good for me? How do I make those decisions? Um, And of course, there are Bible verses that are relevant to all of those choices. But there are no direct commands that tell us specifically what to do as we make those choices. And so part of what I want to say is the way of the Pharisee is very reasonable and practical. It says we will make a list of rules to cover all of those specifics that will tell you where it's okay to go and where it's not okay to go, what activities it's okay to engage in and not, what it's okay to drink, what it's okay to listen to and not. We'll give you a list of authors that it's okay to read and the ones that it's not okay to read. I want to suggest that by contrast, there's a simplicity to the way of Jesus. He doesn't spell out what to do in every specific circumstance. He gives us these few commands. There's not actually that many of them to guide our steps. And maybe the question for us is, did Jesus know what he was doing? Um, Do we trust him that he knows best when he gave us these few simple commands and left it there? So the way of the Pharisees is complicated. The way of Jesus is simple. Second, the Pharisees focus on the outside. Jesus focuses on the heart. The Pharisees are all about what is visible, external behavior. Um, They're all about being seen in public to do the right thing because people are watching. Jesus says to them in Matthew 23, you wash the outside of the cup while the inside is full of grime and all kinds of ugly things. Jesus, by contrast, wants to focus on the heart. It's not that he doesn't care about our behavior and our actions. He very much does care about those. But he knows that we can sometimes tidy up the outside to look impressive without any actual change of heart or character or motivation or desire. One of the images Jesus uses most often is that of a fruit tree. He says later on in the Sermon on the Mount, a bad tree can't bear good fruit and a good good tree can't bear bad fruit. If you want to change the fruit on the outside, you have to change the nature of the tree. And maybe if you want a picture of the Pharisee way, it's about running around tying plastic fruit on the trees to hide the fact that the trees are actually dead and lifeless. what this means in practice, I think, is the Pharisee, when they come come to a command in the Bible, um, take the command and run off to multiply subclauses focused on external behavior in every imaginable circumstance. While the follower of Jesus brings the command to Jesus and asks him, show me the heart of this command. Show me what kind of heart you're looking for, what kind of character, what kind of person you're looking for. And so we ask Jesus to lead us to the heart of the command. 
That's the second thing. The third thing is this. This one may surprise you. Um, but the way of the Pharisee is achievable. And I mean achievable by human effort. Where the way of Jesus needs a miracle. Um, I think this is easy to miss because the Pharisees have so many rules that it looks like they're setting the bar really high. They have a really high view of holiness and righteousness. But actually, this is the the little secret of the Pharisees. Their rules are complicated, but they're also totally doable. Running around tying plastic fruit on dead trees is ridiculous and exhausting, but you can do it by yourself. Just roll your sleeves up and get on with it, and you can do it. And this is the heart of the Pharisee problem. For all that they are serious about the Bible and about doctrine and about holiness, theirs is a project of DIY self-improvement. They don't actually want to humble themselves and depend on God. The list of rules that they have might be long and complicated, but once you have that long, complicated list of rules, you can head off into life depending on your list of rules and ticking them off one by one. And when you do well, you can feel proud. And when uh, and when you're doing better than others, you can criticize the others who aren't doing as well as you. Because if you can do it, then why can't they? Um, and you don't need grace, and you don't need God, and you don't need a miracle. Let me say it really bluntly. If your definition of a righteous life is something like, don't drink, don't smoke, don't say bad words, don't watch these movies, don't read these books, don't go to that place. You don't need Jesus to have died and risen again. You don't need the Holy Spirit. You don't need a miracle of new creation and resurrection. You just need your list of rules and a bit of grit and a bit of determination and you can get on with it. But what if we let Jesus show us what a righteous life is like? If we let Jesus show us and we discover it involves a transformed heart and it means loving God with heart, soul, mind and strength and it means loving my neighbor as myself and it means forgiving my enemies and it means blessing those who curse me and it means getting rid of lust and anger from the heart. If it means becoming like Jesus in my character, then here's the truth. I can't do it. I stand in need of a miracle of grace. I stand in need of Jesus. And that's the point. I bring the commands to him and I say, can you make me into the kind of creature that can obey this impossible, beautiful command? The commands are not the center of my life. They keep bringing me back to Jesus because he is my joy and my righteousness and my freedom. The great bluff with the way of the Pharisees is that it looks like it takes holiness seriously but it actually focuses on a thousand small things in order to avoid the big impossible things. And that's what Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He said, you strain at gnats and you swallow camels. He said, you're on your hands and knees, picking at your herbs to tithe them, picking out your mint leaves and your dill leaves and so on. But you've missed the big things that God is asking of you, which are justice and mercy and faithfulness. And that's the spirit of the Pharisees today. That sometimes I would rather sit at my computer screen looking for faults I can criticize in other people and arguing with strangers about minor points of doctrine or politics 
than go downstairs and deal with the things that matter, which are loving my wife and showing forgiveness and grace to her and to my children and showing kindness to my lonely neighbour and reaching out with the gospel to those around me who are lost. Um, the way of the Pharisee is totally doable. The way of Jesus is needs a miracle in my life. And here's the last thing, is that the way of the Pharisee is heavy and joyless, and the way of Jesus brings life and joy. Jesus often says we need to pay attention to the fruit in someone's life. I think we don't listen to that enough. We need to pay attention to the fruit in someone's life. The way of the Pharisee bears really predictable fruit. I think there's a fruit in the supermarket called the ugly fruit. Uh, The way of the Pharisee uh, bears predictable ugly fruit. It makes people proud, self-righteous, critical, angry, heavy. It's heavy, it's burdensome, it lacks love, it lacks grace, it lacks joy, it lacks freedom. It chokes life from us and from those around us. You don't want to live next door to a Pharisee. You don't want to work at the next cubicle and work to a Pharisee. They are a good man in the worst sense of the word, as Mark Twain uh, once memorably put it. The way of Jesus also bears predictable fruit. Love of God and love of neighbor, love of enemy, love of stranger, and all the rest of the fruit of the Spirit, which is joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Those things, the fruit of the Spirit, I think, are fundamentally unfakeable. You know them when you see them. And you want to be near the person who is carrying that fruit in their lives because they give life to those around them as Jesus himself did. This is a righteousness that far exceeds that of the Pharisees. It's far harder and it's far, far better. This is the beauty of real holiness. It's what you and I were made for. It's the way of Jesus. I want to finish with that quote again. Um, from C.S. Lewis, that he is going to make us into creatures that can obey these commands. Um, Let's pray that that'll be so in our lives. Um, And then we're going to sing again uh, to finish our service. Let's, Let's pray together. Father, I want to pray that these challenging words of Jesus would resound in our hearts this morning and would stay with us and follow us uh, into the day ahead and the week ahead. Father, I want to pray for those of us who maybe as we've been reflecting on these things this morning, we recognize something of the Pharisee in ourselves. And we recognize maybe that we've become like that older brother in Jesus' parable. And we're we're working so hard and we're trying so hard to be right all the time and to do the right thing and to keep everybody around us right. But we've become angry and critical and joyless. And Father, if that's where we are this morning, I want to pray that we would remember that in that story, the father comes looking for the older brother and pleads with him 
to come back to the Father's house where there is feasting and dancing and joy. Father, I want to pray you would help us to crumple up our Pharisee lists of rules and to come back to Jesus and to let him show us a better way, a righteousness that far exceeds the petty legalistic righteousness of the Pharisees. Father, I want to pray uh, for all of us this morning that we would hear the invitation of Jesus um, to a life that is far better uh, than nitpicking, rule-keeping religion. Um, Father, teach us what it means to run in the way of your commands. Um, Teach us what it means to be able to say your commands are not burdensome because we've experienced your spirit changing our hearts and giving us new desires and making us like Jesus. We pray that you would fill our lives with the beauty of holiness, with the beauty of the character of Jesus himself. We want to confess together, we can't do this. We need Jesus. We need grace. We need the Spirit. Would you come and make us holy? Would you come and give us what we need every day, every hour? Because we need you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.